Hello, everyone. You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. I'm your host, Daniela Lake, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Oren Samet from the Department of Political Science. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Danielle. Yeah, so why don't you tell us what exactly you're studying in the field of political science? Sure, so, so my research sits on the kind of boundary between two subfields of political science. So comparative politics and international relations. And within that, I'm really interested in authoritarian regimes um, and particularly the opposition to them. So things like opposition parties and also what we call civil society. So that includes NGOs, non-governmental organizations, activists, social movements. In particular, I'm interested in the international activity of those opposition actors. So when parties or civil society um, tries to engage international governments or international institutions, um, in order to strengthen their, their struggle at home. And when did you first become interested in studying this? Uh, it's a great question. So I, I think I've, I've always been interested in politics, but I guess my, my first kind of inspiration and exposure to the politics of authoritarian regimes and opposition um, came when I was actually studying abroad as an undergrad. Um, I, I studied in, or I, I attempted to study in Egypt, in Cairo, um, but I got there in, in January of 2011, which I don't know how familiar you are with Egyptian history or your listeners are, but that was a particularly important moment uh, because it was the start of what we now kind of think of as the Arab Spring. And so there were massive protests that emerged kind of less than a week after I, I arrived in Egypt um, and then kind of descended. So I actually had to be evacuated from Egypt and couldn't study there. Um, but that experience instigated kind of my interest in, in how these opposition movements build over time and how they manifest. And then beyond that, once I, once I graduated from undergrad, before I started my PhD, um, I, I lived and worked in Southeast Asia and, and worked with um, human rights NGOs and also with opposition politicians um, in the region. And so that was real inspiration for me to kind of see up close kind of what these opposition actors and particularly the politicians that I worked with, how they, they struggled under, under the authoritarian governments that they, that they lived under. Um, and, and kind of served as a real inspiration for my dissertation work and my, my broader research. Yeah, wow, that's a crazy study abroad. Right. <laughs> yeah, and just for the, the people listening who might not be super familiar with authoritarianism, could you describe what an authoritarian government is? Sure, yeah. So in political science, we, we sort of um, think of authoritarian governments as kind of the opposite of democracies. So, you know, in democracies, people elect their leaders through free, mostly free and fair elections, where the people kind of have a choice in who governs them. Um, and in authoritarianism, that choice doesn't really exist. So, you know, we could think of another terms that we might use are autocracy or dictatorship, places where the leadership is, is not um, elected, um, or at least isn't elected freely and fairly. Increasingly, we see more and more authoritarian regimes that actually do have elections, which is part of my research. Um, but, but really, it's, it's a question of, of whether the people have some, some say. There's also kind of a, a debate within political science of whether there's really only, only democracies or autocracies. There's kind of uh, dichotomous, we could, like only, only two types of governments. Um, or a lot of people think that there's you know, democracies on one end of the spectrum authoritarian regimes on the other end of the spectrum. And then in between there's sort of 
kind of mixes, hybrid regimes. Um, that's a debate, an ongoing debate, but either way, I mean, we can think of authoritarianism as, as the opposite of democracy, where people do not have the full freedom to choose their leadership. And so how exactly are you conducting your research on opposition and civil society? You know, in, in authoritarian regimes, it's, it's challenging uh, to do research, particularly because the access to data is much more limited than it might be in democracies. So if we think about doing research on U.S. politics, you know, we can use things like surveys, polls, um, a lot of administrative data is available that we can get really good information about kind of who lives where and how people vote. That often isn't available in authoritarian regimes, particularly in, in places that I study, which are, are often less economically developed. And that means I kind of have to triangulate. So a few different uh, sources of data. One is um, there's kind of cross-national data on different characteristics of regimes. So things like, do they hold elections? You know, what do their elections look like? Um, you know, what kinds of, of legislative or executive institutions do those countries have? And so by looking across countries, we can kind of see differences in, in how certain institutional arrangements might relate to other outcomes. So it's kind of cross-national data collection and analysis. Um, that's one way. Another way that, I, that I'm doing, I, right now I'm actually talking to you from Thailand where I'm doing what we call field work. Um, which is basically being somewhere and talking to people and, and doing kind of formal interviews or having informal conversations with, in my case, you know, politicians, people who work with politicians, members of civil society activists, and really just, just learning from them about, about how they, they work and what they do. And so kind of combining those, you know, quantitative data with qualitative data to really understand how the dynamics work. Um, so it's, you know, it, it can be a struggle because that data isn't, isn't readily available, but kind of trying to figure out where you can get the information and, and pulling as much as you can. And I was wondering, like, is it at all dangerous for a researcher to be in an authoritative, like, government, like, you know, studying and asking the people questions? Like, how is that? I think it can be. And I think, you know, I certainly, and I know other researchers who operate in these environments take precautions to make sure that they're protecting, you know, not only ourselves, but also anyone we might talk to. So any, any kind of um, informants or, or interview subjects. Um, and there's a whole process we go through to make sure that that, you know, that we're not putting anyone in any kind of danger. Um, a lot of the research, you know, there's some things that some countries that I study that I can't go to. Um, either because of what I study or just because the country isn't, um, you know, it's, it's not safe for really most people to, to just go there freely. Um, and in those cases, it's even harder to get data. And so you have to kind of rely on a lot of maybe internet sources, talking to people remotely. But yeah, I think it's definitely a concern that, that any researcher who's operating in an authoritarian regime has to be aware of and, and take into account seriously. Earlier, you mentioned that some authoritarian governments do have elections. So I was wondering if you could talk about why they do that and their, I guess, agenda with having elections. Yeah. So, so this is this is a, a big question in political science. Um, you know, authoritarian elections are, are not like democratic elections. They're not opportunities for the people to freely choose their leadership. And so as a result, you know, it, it, it is a big question, like why bother, right? What, if, if you know what the outcome is going to be, or you, you're pretty sure what the outcome is going to be, why bother? And I think there's, there's some debate in political science over this, but I think a lot of it, people kind of agree that it partially comes down to some reputational cost in certain contexts, right? In, in an environment where democracy or the appearance of democracy elections is kind of expected among the international community, there might be some need to actually 
have elections in order to fulfill that kind of expectation, which might, things might come along with it, like international aid, for instance. So countries may feel pressure to hold those elections. The other reason is that in some cases, authoritarian elections provide regimes with uh, pathways towards stability. So they can help stabilize regimes by kind of creating institutionalized mechanisms for power sharing. So authoritarian regimes might have a bunch of a bunch of kind of elites, not just the one leader um, who are are vying for power and kind of fighting. And and elections may actually provide ways to kind of smooth over disagreements within that ruling elite. So there, there are kind of different reasons why that may be the case. But I think in the current international environment where democracy or, or sorry, elections are kind of prioritized and expected, um, authoritarian regimes kind of react to that and, and are therefore are making decisions to, to use that institutional form to their advantage. I, I should also, one thing I should add there too is that, you know, historically there were more authoritarian regimes that didn't have elections. But basically since the early 1990s and the end of the Cold War, um, most regimes, including authoritarian regimes around the world, actually hold elections. So it's actually the norm for authoritarian regimes to hold elections now. That's really interesting. And based on your research, and you know, right now you're in the field, (laughs) um, would you say that most of the population actually prefers democracy and, and wants democracy, but you know, it's not available to them? Or are people so used to living under the government that they just kind of have accepted it? So yeah, I was just kind of wondering, like, what is the general opinion? Yeah, so I would say I think those two, those two kind of scenarios that you described aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. So people can both prefer democracy and kind of be resigned to living under authoritarian regimes. And I would say I'm, I'm in Thailand right now. And that's, that's the case for a lot of people in, in Thailand. Um, they may not particularly appreciate the, the authoritarian nature of their government, but they, um, you know, aren't, aren't necessarily rising up against it at all times um, because it's, it's a burden to do that. Um, that being said, I, I mean, there were really big protests against authoritarianism in Thailand a couple of years ago. I mean, a year and a half ago. Um, that are still ongoing a little bit. And I think that speaks to the degree to which there really is, at least in the countries that I study, a desire for democratic government, both because, you know, people want their views and their um, interests and desires to be reflected by their government, but also because a lot of times, especially in the region that I study, you know, authoritarianism has not delivered for the people. Um, another country I study is, is Myanmar, uh, which is right now under military rule. And there, you know, when, when elections have occurred, even under really difficult kind of unfair conditions, the people just continually vote for the democratic opposition as opposed to the military backed parties. And I think that reflects the extent to which, you know, there's a real strong desire for democracy and, and one that's also built on kind of the failings of the military in that country, because the military in Myanmar has really run the country into the ground economically and politically in a way that is that is uh, hated by the people. And so I think contexts where you know, authoritarians have ruled for a long time are ones in which people really may be interested in democracy. But I will say that being said, I mean, there's plenty of places where, and plenty of people that I think do have a, a kind of um, affinity for authoritarianism in, in some contexts. Yeah, I was wondering if you could tell us more about opposition parties and like 
you know, are these parties typically like big groups of people and how exactly do they operate? Yeah, so there's a lot of diversity among opposition parties uh, across the world. The, the ones that I study in particular, I mean, I, I, focus, uh, I, I focus broadly cross-nationally, but my regional area of expertise is Southeast Asia. And in the authoritarian regimes in Southeast Asia, there are a lot of um, kind of pretty large and well-organized parties. And those parties, you know, do um, have a lot of support among big swaths of the population. So in those contexts, you know, Myanmar was an example, the, the main opposition party there, uh, which is called the National League for Democracy, is um, hugely popular and, and really hugely successful at, at organizing themselves, even under really repressive conditions. So I think that's kind of the, the best case scenario for an opposition party, or at least one under authoritarianism, uh, is, is to really have that kind of public support and internal organization, despite challenges. I shouldn't say the NLD, but that party is not perfect at all. Um, but oftentimes, you know, when you're struggling against authoritarianism, one of the strategies that, that, that regimes and autocrats can use is to try and divide the opposition. So there are other contexts where you might see a lot of kind of small parties that maybe are, are very organized around a particular leader um, and that don't actually sort of have a lot of popular support. So there is a lot of variety, but I think um, it, it really depends on a lot of contextual factors. Would you say that that's the biggest struggle opposition parties face, um, the, the current government trying to kind of shake things up or are there other struggles that are more challenging? Yeah, um, I would say in general, when, when you have opposition parties and authoritarian regimes, I think the biggest struggle tends to be the degree to which the playing field is just totally not even. And that's a function of, of the regime trying to make the lives of opposition parties and politicians difficult. Um, and so that can happen by you know, playing this divide and conquer strategy that I was just talking about. Um, it can be by creating really severe administrative burdens. So basically, you know, not letting parties raise money or, um, you know, closing down their events for arbitrary reasons. It can go as far as, as arresting, imprisoning, killing opposition politicians. Um, and in some of the cases that I study, it can actually involve the complete kind of banning of opposition parties entirely, uh, of particular parties or, or in general. Um, so I do think kind of the, the institutional environment, the regime and the barriers that the regime puts up for opposition parties is really the, the main struggle that I think distinguishes authoritarian governments from democracies in terms of the way that opposition parties can function. And how do opposition parties usually uh, overcome that? Uh, really good question that gets to the center of my research, uh, the, the big question of opposition strategies. Um, there's a number of different ways and, uh, you know, some of them are focused on the domestic level, which I think has received a lot of academic attention in this kind of area of research. Um, those include things like forming coalitions. So as mentioning that divide and conquer strategy that regimes try to play, well, oppositions can try to, to push against it by saying, you know what, we're not going to let you try and divide us. We're going to run together. We're going to run as a single ticket or we're going to coordinate our electoral strategies so that um, we can actually effectively challenge you kind of head to head. And that can be quite effective. Um, sometimes mobilizing protesters and, and kind of creating synergies with social movements can be helpful to, to make sure your, your you know, protest can be an effective tool to challenge authoritarian governments. So if opposition parties are engaging with them, that can be really good. That's kind of on the domestic level. 
Uh, my research focuses also bringing into the discussion the kind of international activities that opposition parties can engage in. And one of the big ones is to try and get pressure, international pressure on the incumbent regime. So if it's really hard to win at home, for instance, right? Like, you know, the, that coalition strategy or protests just aren't really working. Um, you might go to a, a foreign government or the UN um, and say, you know what? Our government is behaving really badly. And we think that you should actually punish them for that and punish them and say, provide incentives and, and, um, and reasons why the government should actually open up space for democracy. So in some cases, you see oppositions calling for sanctions on the regimes that they challenge, or you see them calling for um, diplomats to be vocal and to actually criticize the government. And so that's actually a, a strategy that opposition parties can use that goes kind of outside um, and doesn't go directly, you know, doesn't necessarily function within the country, but is kind of a roundabout way of getting back to, to the government and, and hoping that, that that produces some sort of institutional environmental change. What opposition party has been the most successful that you've learned about? In the region that I study, which is Southeast Asia, I would say a, the kind of best example I can point to is the, the National League for Democracy in Myanmar. So the one that I was talking about before, the NLD. And this party has, has been particularly successful at internationalizing their struggle. So, so making the, the struggle for democracy in, in Myanmar into kind of a, an international cause. Um, and I think, you know, one of the ways they've done that is really by engaging the international community, both international governments and diplomats, but also um, activists abroad and the, the diaspora. So the, the diaspora that those individuals who are, are from Myanmar, but live elsewhere. And so they were, the NLD was, was sort of working under a really repressive uh, military government for, for decades, from the 1990s um, through to the mid 2010s. And throughout that time, they, they again were really successful at, at getting this international support, getting international solidarity in particular. And that was, was, I think, really critical to them actually kind of gaining power in, in, in 2015, ultimately. Uh, the military kind of pulled back a little bit and was, was still in a lot, still controlled a lot of the, of the government, but the NLD was able to actually um, form a government. Uh, unfortunately, last year there was a coup in Myanmar, so, so the government was kind of, the NLD was, was pushed out of power once again. Um, and now they're kind of back to the same tools of, of getting international support, getting international solidarity. Um, so that I would say is, is one case where um, they've been quite successful at getting international support. It hasn't necessarily translated into clear successes. Obviously, they're out of power once again. But that, I think, speaks to the extent to which the regime itself is really a challenge in, in Myanmar. So it's, it's, um, it's not necessarily because they've done a bad job, but more because they've been up against such a kind of formidable authoritarian foe. Yeah. And I was wondering, too, with the rise of social media and the use of the internet, in what ways have opposition parties like taken advantage of, you know, reaching to out to other people with social media? Like, how have you seen that play out? Really good question. So in, in Thailand, here in Thailand, um, there was an election in 2019, which was the first election after in a long time because there had been a coup five years before in 2014. And so, so there's a military government, um, clear authoritarian government that decided to have elections for the reasons, some of the reasons that we talked about earlier. And in that election, there was a new opposition party uh, called the Future Forward Party 
that kind of no one really thought was going to be very successful. They were kind of a party that was made up of kind of young, idealistic, you know, pro-democracy people uh, led by this really charismatic guy named Tanaton, who, you know, seemed like they were going to do fine, but, but probably not get a lot of votes. And what they did was really mobilize social media to such an extent that they performed way better than expected. And a lot of that came down to the fact that they were getting a lot of support from young people in Thailand, young people who are really engaged um, on, on, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and, and they use that to their advantage. And so I think in contexts where uh, it may be more difficult to get your message out in authoritarian regimes, social media can be a tool for, for increasing support and just getting people to know about you and be, be willing to vote for you. In other contexts, it can be more difficult to do that. Thailand, that election was by authoritarian standards, relatively free and fair. But in other contexts, you know, social media may not have that power because the government may have other tools at its disposal to really prevent the opposition from getting support. Um, but social media can also be useful internationally, right? You, you can be appealing to international, the international community and especially to, to activists abroad through social media. So that's another way that that, that tool can be effective. But I, I would say it's, it's, you know, it can be a game changer under certain conditions like, like it was in Thailand for the Future Forward Party. Yeah, and I just was wondering, I mean, I've learned a little bit about this in political science classes, but, you know, for the people listening, um, in what ways do authoritarian governments limit like internet use, social media use, um, what are the strategies that they use? Yeah, I think limits on information is one of the key mechanisms that authoritarian regimes use to um, maintain a hold over their country and their population. Um, so it, it, it goes from kind of the most extreme, I would say, is, is China, right, where, where a lot of the, the social media and internet tools and sites that we come to know in the U.S. aren't available aren't available at all. And that's because of something called the Great Firewall. So China can kind of prevent any internet traffic from Facebook and Twitter and all these all these sites. And so they have their own kind of contained internet, um, which can be very effective if you want to be able to control the flow of information um, to your people and limit what they're able to hear, which enables you know, propaganda to, to sort of flow more efficiently and effectively. You know, the internet is, is I would say, more freely available um, than Thailand and Cambodia, which is another country I study. But in both countries, they're kind of making moves toward doing something called a single gateway, which basically allows only one uh, entry point for all internet traffic into the country that makes it easier to block certain websites or, or prevent certain information from getting through. And then you see, you see kind of shifts over time. So in Myanmar, after the coup last year, there was a real uh, crackdown on the internet. And so it's much more difficult to get internet access. A lot of sites are blocked and, um, and even access to, to data, to mobile data, which is where a lot of people, how a lot of people in, in Myanmar get their internet. It's become very expensive and just really difficult uh, to access. So all kinds of ways, I, I think, to, to, to kind of constrict access, but that is really a key tool that authoritarian regimes attempt to use. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, too, what has been your biggest takeaway from your research? And, you know, with you living in America for, have you lived in America for most of your life? Yes. Yeah. Except for my, I lived in, in Thailand for, for four years before starting grad school. Besides that, it's mostly, mostly in America. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So with you, like, living in a democracy and then studying these countries, um, and also, you know, just observing 
democratic backsliding in other countries as well. I was just wondering, like, yeah, what's been your biggest takeaway? Have there been, you know, any major trends that you're noticing that's really concerning? Just, yeah, what are your reflections? So biggest takeaway, um, I, I would say, you know, one thing is just having worked with a lot of, of, of politicians, particularly opposition politicians, having worked with a lot of civil society and activists previously, and now studying them and, and doing research on, on their work. Um, one big takeaway is just how kind of inspiring what they do is, um, how difficult being in the opposition is in an authoritarian regime. And, you know, you're right. I mean, having lived in the US, I, I sort of take for granted a lot of times, and I think a lot of us do, um, you know, what it means, you know, it means going to vote, it means being active in your community, it means, um, you know, working on causes you care about. But all of those things are are much harder to do in an authoritarian regime. And so the people who do do it, and who don't get resigned, like we were talking about earlier, who don't just say, fine, I'll live with it, but actually try to change the system, um, are particularly inspiring just because it's so hard. And because so often, it's easy to lose hope. Um, and so I think that's, for me, is, is a really big takeaway is just recognizing how, how difficult the struggle is and how impressive it is that people continue to engage in it. Um, you were also talking about trends over time, right? Asking about, about the trends. And I think one that we're seeing now has really been increasing autocratization. So autocracy, again, is another term for authoritarianism. Uh, and we talk about autocratization as being the opposite of democratization. So you know, democratization is moving towards democracy and, and having more free and fair elections. But increasingly around the world, we're seeing the opposite trend. We're seeing backsliding away from democracy and countries becoming more authoritarian. Um, and that's pretty concerning, especially if you're someone who, who cares about people being able to kind of freely choose their leadership. So that, that's, a, a, I would say, one of the big trends that's happened recently. Yeah. And with you having spent several years in Thailand, do you think you'll be, you know, living there for more extended periods of time? Or are you planning on mainly doing your research from the U.S.? Like, what are your plans for the future? Um, yeah, I, 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 I love being in Southeast Asia. I have a lot of, of um, friends here, a lot of, you know, former colleagues here and I, I would love to have my my work um, still be here in some respect. I, I I don't think that necessarily means living here permanently in the future. It might, um, but I, I think when you do this kind of research, it's it's really important to um, spend a lot of time in in the places that you're studying. And so for me, that that's been very important, um, and I, and I think it will continue to be important in order to really understand how the region is changing, um, how these 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 phenomena that I'm interested in actually manifest in, in real in real life, and so it's it's always going to be important to to spend time here. What that looks like in terms of percentage of my time is is kind of up in the air, and 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 we'll see. Yeah, and bringing it back to Berkeley, how did you choose Berkeley? How did I choose Berkeley? I would say Berkeley chose me um, because I, when I was working in Thailand and I was, I was thinking about a PhD, I was applying to different places. And I, I really liked the, the community, the department of political science at Berkeley. Um, but I'll be honest with you, I, I got in and it's, it's really competitive and it's really hard to get into to grad programs. And, and that's, that's, that's the truth. That's the answer. 
Uh, but I am really happy and Berkeley's been a fantastic uh, place to study what I study. Yeah, and um, a couple of the other PhD students that I've interviewed for the show have mentioned that, you know, they would love to be a professor <laughs> one day in their field. Is that any, you know, do you hope for that too? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I'm sure the other folks you've talked to have mentioned how how challenging the academic job market is and how difficult it is to be a professor. So I'm totally aware of that. But I, you know, I really love the research that I do. Uh, I'm really passionate about it. And, you know, you're my former student. I also love the teaching and I love engaging with students and, and sharing with them the kinds of research and, and insights that, that come up in, in political science. So all that kind of seems like a professor would be a great, a great fit. But obviously the, the challenges, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that shakes out. Before we end the show, I was wondering, is there anything you wanted to leave the audience with? One thing that I think has come up in my research a bit and that may be relevant to, to people at Berkeley and undergrads in general, people in general, is, you know, we, we tend to romanticize um, kind of leaderless movements, right, for, for change. So leaderless movements for human rights and democracy and social justice. And the kinds of movements that, that those produce are, are wonderful and I think really effective in a lot of ways. But I think one of the things that my research focuses on is the extent to which leadership is also really important and particularly political leadership. So it can often be kind of, even for me, kind of unsettling because politicians can often be, you know, not the most admirable people in a lot of contexts. But I think that it, it's worth still thinking about the role that, that politicians play and the importance that they play in processes like democratization or, or broad-based social change. Um, so making sure to kind of think about pairing that idealistic movement spirit with a kind of political leadership that can that can see it through. I, I think it it's something that you know is is worth thinking about for those that are interested in in pursuing social change and pursuing democratization wherever they may they may live. Today we've been speaking to Oren Samet from the Department of Political Science. We've been talking about his research on opposition and civil society under authoritarianism. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.